Testament. You all can be seated. Uh, you can open up your copy of the Bible to the book of Hebrews. We are starting Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Uh, we're going to get through the first 18 verses of that chapter, Lord willing, of Hebrews 10. We wanted to note a few things before we uh, turn uh, our attention more to this text. I wanted just to say, as I seek to regularly do, thank you for your generosity as individuals and as a collective church and giving of what the Lord's entrusted to you into the common uh, general fund of our church and even sometimes the specific projects. I'm grateful uh, to be a recipient of those gifts, but more than that, I'm grateful for what God does through them uh, in our community and then all over the world. So thank you for your ongoing generosity. And then one other thing I want to note is we're a few weeks away from Easter, from Resurrection Sunday. It's just three weeks from today, uh, believe it or not. And so starting to turn gears ahead to that. Um, we, did, we have made, our family ministries department made up a little devotional booklet, a devotional guide that's more geared towards families and families with elementary kids uh, and downward, but it could be of help to anybody uh, that they've made some recommended readings starting this week and the next couple weeks leading up to Easter. Those are available digitally at our church website. Just do our church URL forward slash Easter. Uh, you can find a digital copy there. There's print copies out at our bookstore if you want to grab one of those before you leave today. I would love to be able to uh, put those in your hands and to give you a resource to read through with your family or to even just prepare your own heart uh, for Easter and what we celebrate, what we remember as we come to that holiday. But we're going to be in Hebrews 10, like I said this morning. If you're not with us normally, what we typically do as a church family is we just work through books of the Bible. We take some time other times to go through subjects, but the main diet of what we intake on Sundays is just we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. And we're up to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. But I was thinking of this, a general rule of thumb that's probably just wise in practice and that most of us operate by, but we may not ever take the time to articulate it because it's so basic, uh, is in how we relate to other people's kids. Uh, in general, if you are interacting with the children of a, of a different person, uh, they are not your own children, the general rule of thumb should be that you, if you know that parent's rules, you are reinforcing those rules, not undermining them, right? You're trying to teach those kids to follow what their mom or dad has told them to do and to, to not do what their mom and dad have told them to not do. We don't undermine. We seek to reinforce the rules that parents have for their children. So for example, if I've told my children specifically to do something, I, I've commanded them to do it, and if you know I have told them to do that thing, let's say you heard me tell them to do it, uh, if you are going to, for some reason, tell them to not do that thing that I have told them to do, uh, you better have good reason to do that, right? You better have like good rationale, you better have some rock solid reasoning of why you're telling them that they don't need to do what I've told them to do, and that's how I would want to be with your children as well, right? If a parent has told a child to do something, we, it should, we should be slow then to tell those kids to not do that thing. Or if they've forbidden something of their kids, we should be very slow to say, oh no, it's good, like you can do that. We, we must have some serious rationale, some rock solid reasoning if we're going to do that. If that's true just with us as fellow human beings, how much more true is that as we think about what God has told his children to do? If God has told his children, do this thing, I'm commanding you, do this thing. If we even have the thought to, to then turn to those children of God and say, you know what, actually, you don't have to do that. 
Like, you can be freed of that. That thing God has told you to do, you know, you don't need to do that. If we have the, the boldness to do that, we better have some rock-solid reasoning. We better have some tremendous, airtight rationale of why we're going to tell God's kids, uh, God's children, that they don't need to do what God has told them to do. That is no small thing at all. But in today's text, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is going to do. He's going to tell the children of God, these Jewish believers in Christ, whom God has commanded in the Old Testament to offer sacrifices, to bring animal sacrifices to him. God has told them to do that. This author is going to tell them, you know what? You actually don't need to do that anymore. And you should not do that anymore. He's going to tell them to not do something God had previously told them to do. And this, this should give him sobriety. It should give the hearers, the original recipients of this letter, some sobriety to think, man, we are being told to not do something God has told us to do. And if we sit in the, the seat that these people were sitting in, if we try to see it through their eyes, we would remember these are Jewish Christians These are men and women who had grown up as Jews, who had been taught the law of God from Moses from the time that they were little. They had been taught to bring offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. And their people had done that for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. They brought thousands upon thousands of animals to be sacrificed before God, not just because they thought God would like it, but because God had told them to. God had commanded these sacrifices to be made. Yet in today's text, we're going to see the author of Hebrews is telling them, telling these early Jewish Christians, those sacrifices are no longer required. In fact, those sacrifices are no longer appropriate. Like they, they should not be offered at all. And if he's going to make a claim like that, if he's going to tell God's people to not do what God has said, he better have some tremendous evidence. He better have some strong witnesses to bring forward to make his case. As we're going to see, he does have such evidence. He does have such witnesses. And so if you've been with us, I know some of you missed the last few weeks with break and whatnot, but if you've been with us some going through the book of Hebrews, you've seen the last couple chapters that this author, we don't know who it was, but he's been telling the original recipients and telling us by extension how much better the new covenant is than the old covenant. This new arrangement that God has brought forth with the coming of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, he's been telling them again and again, that covenant is far better than the old one, the one that was instituted at Mount Sinai with all of its laws and regulations. This new covenant is far better. And in this text today, in the verses that immediately preceded it, he's been more specifically, as he's talked about that covenant, been more specifically talking even about the sacrifices of this new covenant or the singular sacrifice of this new covenant that it far surpasses any sacrifices that were ever offered under the old covenant. And he is writing to men and women who are Jewish by ethnicity, but they are people who have placed their trust in Jesus. They're people who've heard the good news of Jesus, that he's their Messiah they've been waiting for, and they have turned from their sin. They've put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah. They've repented, they've believed, yet they're facing temptation to go back to those old covenant practices, to return to those sacrifices and rituals of the old covenant. And I think we should have some sympathy for them. They are Jewish after all, right? They had been taught under the law of Moses to do these things. God had commanded them to make these sacrifices. So it, it begs the question, what would the problem be with returning to do those things? 
God had commanded them, people had done them for centuries. What would be the problem with returning to those things? And on what grounds then can this author tell them to not? to forbid them even from going back to those things. So let's find out. I'm going to read for us Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, and then we'll walk back through this text after I read it. But as, as you hear me read it, let's see what his argument is. Let's see how he builds his case for why they need to stop going back to these sacrifices, to never go back to them again. What evidence does he bring? What witnesses does he call forth? Let's see together. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Our unknown author, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues writing this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. This author is building a case here in this section of this letter that culminates in our last verse, where he's finally, after he's made the argument, saying, where there is forgiveness of sin, where that has actually been extended and granted, there is no longer any offering for sin. There should be no more animals sacrificed. That's where he ends. But I want us to see how he gets there. How does he arrive at that conclusion? What, is, what are the witnesses? What are the evidence that he brings to these people to tell them that? And then once we see that, there's going to be three witnesses 
weaknesses that I'm going to mention. Once we see that, I want to try at the end to help you see the relevance for you, the relevance for us, because I don't think any of us are probably tempted to go to Jerusalem and build a temple and build an altar and offer animal sacrifices there, but this text does still have relevance for us. So I want to see what he was telling them first, what the arguments were that he was bringing to them, and then ultimately we'll see what it has to do with us. And so I want to show you what I would, how I would describe this three witnesses that the author brings forth here. Uh, three witnesses that he appeals to to make his case that animal sacrifices should no longer be offered. Uh, they should no longer be brought to God, even though he had commanded them centuries before. So witness number one that we're going to see in this text is the sacrifices themselves. Uh, that's what he's going to point them to first as a witness uh, to help support his argument. And as an aside, why I'm using language of witnesses from this text, if you uh, see in verse 15, uh, so he's going to later in this text say, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. And then he's going to say what the Holy Spirit continues to tell us, what his witness is to us, right? There's language there of testifying to something or bearing witness uh, to the truth of something. But I would note he says in 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, right? Which implies whatever he has just said before that, there were other, at least one other witness, if not a few other witnesses to establish what he is trying to say. Uh, the, the most obvious one is the speech of Jesus that starts in verse five. Jesus, he quotes the words of Jesus, which we'll get to in a second. But at the very beginning of today's text, the first paragraph, uh, he's pointing to the sacrifices of these animals themselves. That, that's where he starts this line of reasoning with them, uh, is by pointing them to the sacrifices themselves. And sometimes in trials, this isn't like a trial or a courtroom, but sometimes in trials there's like a surprise witness. There's one people didn't really know was going to be brought forth. I think this is like the surprise witness in this seeking to establish the, the, the claim, don't make any more animal sacrifices. The surprising witness is that he's going to point to those very animal sacrifices themselves uh, to try to establish his case. And when attorneys bring forth a witness, they're seeking to establish something with each particular witness. There, there might be multiple things they're trying to establish, but as he points in this first paragraph to the animal sacrifices themselves, I think what he's trying to, to get these recipients to see and what I would want us to see is the inadequacy of animal sacrifices, that they are or ineffectiveness, if you want to call it that, the, the inadequacy of animal sacrifices. And what he's doing in this, these first four verses, he's trying to point out what should have been painfully obvious to anybody who would have eyes to see it, uh, that, that these animal sacrifices that were done again and again and again and again were doing nothing to actually deal with sin. They weren't putting away sin. They weren't bringing forgiveness to the people who were offering them. They were actually doing nothing in a legal sense, in a relational sense, to restore people to God and to bring forgiveness of sin. So note some of the language that he uses here uh, in the first verses of this text. He says in verse 1, he uses like these superlative, these big words. He says that these animal sacrifices can never perfect worshipers. It's not just that, hey, we'll figure it out someday. He says they can never perfect worshipers, right? And he repeats that language down in verse 11. He says that those sacrifices can never take away sins. That they, it could never be that they would actually work, that they would actually be 
effective. And he points out in a few different ways in this first paragraph and then a little later on too, that this repetition of these sacrifices, the annual uh, sacrifices that were offered again and again on that day of atonement, that repetition proves their ineffectiveness, right? The, the fact that they would have to be offered once and then offered again and then offered again and offered again. He says, he uses different adverbs. He says they're offered continually in verse one. He says in verse 11, they're offered repeatedly, right? There's this repetition to these sacrifices that should have, for anybody who would have eyes to see it, show them these things aren't actually working. It's not like they have a 365-day effective period, right? And then it wears off and we need to get a booster, right? That, that's not what these sacrifices are doing. They're, the fact that they're being repeated is showing they're not doing anything. That they're not actually accomplishing anything to establish forgiveness before God for sinners like us. He says in verse 3, he says, if these sacrifices and the repetition of them are doing anything, they're not removing sin. He says, they're reminding of sin. Like the, the fact of having to kill these animals again and again is reminding people of sin, not removing sin from people. It, it was a reminder that guilt remains, that guilt, the guilt still needs to be dealt with. It, that last animal last year didn't deal with it. This one's not going to deal with it. The repetition of them reminds rather than removes and he says in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is as big and as clear of a statement as you can make. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These things God has commanded them to do, he's saying it is impossible for them to actually bring forgiveness. Those animal sacrifices do not work. Pastor John Piper, and speaking of this text, he wrote this. He said, The prescribed repetition of sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament law was a built-in testimony to their inadequacy. They did not perfect the people. They did not deal with sin decisively, finally, once for all. So God, even in the establishment of the repetition of these laws was trying, and these sacrifices was trying to tell them and show them, these sacrifices aren't actually bringing forgiveness. They're pointing to the need of a greater sacrifice, but they themselves are doing nothing to bring you forgiveness. They are inadequate for the task. So that is... Witness number one that he brings forth is the, the sacrifices themselves, the repeated nature of those sacrifices to show they are inadequate. But my guess, if I had to guess, if the recipients of this letter, remember the recipients of this letter are Christians, right? They are people who have heard of the sacrifice of Jesus. They are people who have heard that he died in their place to grant them forgiveness. My guess would be that if they just heard witness number one, like him saying, hey, these animal sacrifices don't actually bring you forgiveness, I think the readers of this would have said, amen. Like they don't bring us forgiveness. Those sacrifices do nothing to actually make us right before God. Only Jesus' blood. That we only plead Jesus' blood. I think they would have agreed with that first paragraph, right? That, that those sacrifices have done nothing to actually bring forgiveness but I think they would have still been tempted to go back to them because they could have said to this author, they could say to us, that we know they're not bringing forgiveness, but God told us to do them. 
God told us to bring them. Like he etched it in stone metaphorically, like uh, that he wants us to do these sacrifices. So we should be allowed to do them. Like if that's where our heart is drawn, we should be able to go back to them. What harm is there in continuing to do these sacrifices and continuing to bring these animals if we're trusting in Christ? And to that, I think the, the author, if he was having a conversation them, with them, would have brought forth witness number two. And this, these last two witnesses, you can't have better witnesses than these. Uh, this witness number two is Jesus Christ himself, right? When he turns to verse five, he ta- what the witness number two is Jesus Christ. When he turns to verse five, he is going to put the words of Psalm 40 which was written by David, he's going to put those words into the mouth of the incarnate Jesus. The, the God, the Son, who's become a man once for all, he's saying that Jesus has said these things. Jesus has testified. He has borne witness in this way. And I think what he's trying to do with bringing forth witness number two, Jesus Christ, is he's trying to establish with the people that not just the inadequacy of animal sacrifices, but the replacement of animal sacrifices. Not just that they were weak and powerless, but that he has replaced animal sacrifices with the sacrifice of his own body at the cross. And so he takes, in verse 5, he starts, and then he starts quoting Psalm 40, a few verses from Psalm 40 uh, that David originally had written. He, he's putting them in the mouth of Jesus And kind of like a sermon, he quotes them, verses 5, 6, and 7, and then he explains them a little bit, uh, kind of like we do in teaching often. So he he quotes these verses from Psalm 40, and those first two verses, 5 and 6, those first two verses where he says, this is a huge statement. David said this, but he's putting this in the mouth of Jesus himself too. Sacrifices, like speaking to God, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. That's a big statement. But a body you have prepared for me, Jesus says. Then speaking to God again, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Let that sink into you for a little bit. What David was saying to God, what Jesus is saying to God the Father as the incarnate Son of God. These would have been familiar statements in the Old Testament scriptures. That wasn't the only time something like this was said, where, where a person expresses to God, you know, God, like, I know your heart ultimately is not just for the blood of some animal to be brought to you, or the, this bull to be killed, or this goat to be sent away. Like, I know you desire more than that. I, I know that those aren't really what pleases your heart. Those aren't really what you're after. If you read through the Old Testament, you see statements almost exactly like that from all sorts of people. You see them said by Samuel. You see them said by the prophet Isaiah. You see them said by Amos. You hear it in the words of David in Psalm 40 where these people again and again and again, it's like a self-critique within the old covenant where they're saying we know God has commanded us this but we also know God's heart is for something better than this, something more than this, that these animals aren't actually bringing us forgiveness. They're not ultimately the type of sacrifice that God is after. God doesn't desire them just in and of themselves and he doesn't take pleasure in them in and of himself. Verses five and six say. But praise God, verse seven is there. Because in the words of David and in the words of Jesus Christ himself, we get to see there is something that God is pleased with. 
there is a sacrifice that God did desire. And it was not the sacrifice of a bull or a goat or a lamb. It was the sacrifice of Jesus himself. It was the, the, his broken body like we just remembered in communion. That was the will of God. That was what God truly desired from the beginning of time. That was what God knew needed to take place in order for sinners like us to be reconciled to him was there had to be a sacrifice better than these bulls and goats. It was the sacrifice of Jesus. And Jesus says there in verse seven to God, what I have come to do is I've come to be that and do that. Like I have come to take this body you have now given me. I used to not have one. Jesus is the only person who remembers his existence before he was a human being. He says, you've given me this body now as the incarnate son of God and I'm going to use this body in service of you. And I'm going to lay this body down at the cross as the sacrifice, Father, that you desire. As a sacrifice that actually does please you, that actually does bring you pleasure. And that is what took place. It wasn't just Jesus' intent when he entered into humanity. It is what actually came to pass. He had this desire to do this, this desire to lay his life down, and that is exactly what took place at the cross. Is that Jesus, the innocent one, allowed the sins of people like us to be counted to him, allowed them to be laid upon him, and then he was punished by God the Father in our place. He took the wrath of God fully, completely, finally for the sins of his people. That they were laid upon him so they might be removed from us. He did what those animal sacrifices can never do. Our sins can't be transferred to a bull or a goat, right? That is not a worthy sacrifice, an adequate sacrifice for uh, image-bearing humans like us. But what would suffice is an image-bearing human, Jesus Christ, an innocent one who could allow our sins to be counted to him and crushed in our place. And he made the effective sacrifice with his body that God had given to him. And the effectiveness of that sacrifice is described in verses 11 through 14. The author has done this before in this letter, but he's going to draw attention again to the fact that right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The, these priests, these Levitical priests in the Old Testament, they, he says in verse 11, they would stand daily at their service because they knew another sacrifice is going to need to be made in the morning or another sacrifice is going to need to be made tonight. They would stand having to do these sacrifices again and again and again, that built-in repetition of sacrifice. But Jesus, when he made the sacrifice that actually worked, that the Father actually did take pleasure in, He was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and he doesn't stand at the ready to make another sacrifice, right? Because no other sacrifice is needed. He sits down. He, He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, right? But I want you to see that the testimony here of Jesus that the author is bringing forth, uh, bringing forth Jesus as a witness is what he's driving at is what you see at the end of verse 9. The reason he even brings this up, the end of verse 9, as he's contrasting, hey, these sacrifices you don't approve of uh, did nothing, but I've come to do your will, God. What he says at the end of verse 9 is that Jesus does away with the first to establish the second. 
It's not just he adds a second thing, like a a better thing. He says he does away with the first. Like that he gets rid of it because he knows and he tells us God takes no pleasure in those things. Like God doesn't actually need the blood of bulls. It's not like he eats their flesh like you're serving him a meal or something. It's like you are not doing God a service by bringing him these things. They don't appease him. They don't deal with your sin. But the sacrifice of Jesus does. And Jesus is saying, I have come. My sacrifice is not just better than these old sacrifices. It is replacing those sacrifices. I am doing away with them. That is God the Son saying that. That's not just some preacher saying that. It's Jesus Christ saying that. He's establishing the second. He's getting rid of the first. And he has done that. The reason he can do that is because he has become the effective sacrifice. He has provided the effective sacrifice. That is what allows him to replace the old, inadequate, and effective sacrifices. So this second witness, Jesus Christ himself, is testifying to the replacement of animal sacrifices, that he is the adequate sacrifice, and he is replacing those animal sacrifices. But for the final witness, the third witness that the author brings forth is the other member of the Trinity uh, that he's not spoken of yet. In verse 15, he brings forth, it's like he calls forth the Holy Spirit himself as the third and final witness in this section. He calls him to the stand. And what he is trying to establish with these words of the Holy Spirit, I would say is this, is an additional step, is the inappropriateness of animal sacrifices. That now that Jesus has come, animal sacrifices are no longer even appropriate. It's not just that they've lost their significance. He's trying to say they are no longer appropriate to be offered. There is no need for them. They are not fitting. They, They would actually dishonor God by being offered now. And similarly to how he does with the testimony of Jesus above, what the author does here is he takes an Old Testament text and he puts it into the mouth of the Holy Spirit. He he says that because the Holy Spirit inspired it, right? But he says that the Holy Spirit, even presently, verse 15, bears witness to us in this text. And what he brings forth, the Holy Spirit's testimony, is words from the Old Testament of Jeremiah 31. If you were with us several weeks ago, you would have known he already quoted this text at length back in chapter 8. That's almost all of what chapter 8 is, is a long quotation of Jeremiah 31. But here he pulls back another little snippet of it. But that's a famous text where Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, had told us God is going to establish a new covenant, a new way of dealing with his people. And he had told us ways it's going to be different and better than that old covenant. And the, the author points us back to this text and the, the witness of the Holy Spirit through it. And he, in verse 16, the party quotes, he reminds them one of the new features, the features of this new covenant that made it better was that God would put his laws on their hearts, right? He would write them on their minds. That it, rather than just being in a box in the tabernacle, he's going to put them actually inside of people. He's going to actually make them want to keep the law of God, right? That's going to be a huge difference. That is a huge difference with God's new covenant people. But note how this author breaks up this quotation, right? He doesn't just quote the whole thing, right? He says, verse 17, then he adds... 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It's like he quotes it a particular way on purpose. And I think he's wanting them to think for just a second, if God would have stopped when he was making that initial promise by saying, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. If God would have stopped there, think about what their argument may have been able to be, right? About sacrifices in particular, right? Like, yeah, the new covenant is great. Like God actually takes his Old Testament law and puts it on our heart and makes us want to obey it. We actually desire to obey it, author of Hebrews, whoever you are. Like we want to obey it and part of obeying it is God told us to offer these sacrifices. And now I want to do that. Now that's written on my heart. I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to offer these sacrifices. Like why won't you let me do it? Like I'm, I'm trying to actually obey the law. Like I'm trying to live new covenant reality. Like this law has been put within me. I, I want to do it now. I don't just, I don't, it's not that I want to take my lamb to be sacrificed and I'm doing it begrudgingly now. Like I actually want to as an offering to God. I want to gladly do that. If God had stopped with that quotation of verse 16, that argument may still hold, right? Like that, hey, like I want to offer these sacrifices. I should be allowed to sacrifice them. But praise God, verse 17 says, then he adds, then he adds. That's not all God said was I'm gonna take my law, my Old Testament law and put it inside of you. He was going to do more than that. There was additional levels and dynamics of what God was going to do in the establishment of this new covenant. He says, then he adds, this was a quote from that same chapter where God had said through Jeremiah, the Holy Spirit spoke through Jeremiah, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That was the core of the new covenant promise, was that God was actually going to forgive sin through the sacrifice of Christ. He wasn't just going to anticipate it in the future, he was going to provide it, like through the sacrifice of Jesus. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When God established this new covenant with Jesus, his intent was not just to make better law keepers, right? It's not just that he wanted us or his people to get better at keeping the old covenant law. He, he was wanting to do something much deeper than that. He was not just wanting them to become better law keepers. He was wanting to forgive them of their law breaking, right? Because they were going to continue to break the law. Even if they cleaned themselves up and got better at keeping the law, they still were breaking it. And what God wanted them to see is this new covenant. The core difference is I'm going to forgive you. Like I'm actually going to grant you forgiveness for your law breaking, not just improve your law keeping. And think about this. If there is anyone who could testify to the reality that God the Father has actually forgiven his people, that this promise has actually come true, it is the Holy Spirit, right? The, the, the Holy Spirit was the one who helped enable Jesus to make his sacrifice at the cross, right? The Holy Spirit was there when the resurrected Jesus came back to life, right? The Holy Spirit was in heaven seeing when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus returned to heaven and sat at the right hand of God the Father, 
right? He has seen all this. He knows the reality of it, that Jesus' sacrifice worked, that he is interceding for his people, that forgiveness is extended and granted to all who come to faith in him. The Spirit has seen that, and he testifies to us this promise, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The Spirit knows that those animal sacrifices reminded people of sin, but the sacrifice of Jesus removes sin from people like us. The Spirit knows that, and he tells us that. God will remember our sins and lawless deeds no more. And then he ends his argument, verse 18, where there is forgiveness, where this forgiveness has finally been granted through the sacrifice of Jesus, there is no longer any offering for sin. And doing so, offering those animal sacrifices, if those people were to continue in that, it would have been a denial of the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus. It wouldn't just be, I'm trying to do a good thing that God told us to do. Doing so, knowing that forgiveness has already been granted to me, would have been a denial of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice because forgiveness has already been granted to them. For Old Testament saints, it was promised to them in the future that they didn't know exactly how it worked, but they knew forgiveness would be granted to them somehow. But for New Testament saints, we know the good news of Christ, that he's died for us, been raised for us, is ascended and interceding for us. We know and we experience now the forgiveness of God. And if someone has paid your debt, if they've kindly known a debt that you owe to someone and they go and pay it for you graciously on your behalf, how dumb would it be for you to continue to try to pay the one you owe money, right? We don't do that as human beings. When the debt is paid, we stop paying the, the one who we owe, right? We, we don't pay them any longer. Or to use another metaphor, when you have used signs to bring you to a destination and you finally arrived at the destination, you don't go back and look at the signs and think, oh, how great those signs were. Like, let's go look back at those signs. Those sacrifices were signs to point them ahead to the final, true, effective sacrifice of Jesus. And now that that has come, it would be absurd and inappropriate to go back to those things that were pointing to it. As if we're intended to stay there, we're intended to be pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. Those sacrifices at the altar outside the temple are just supposed to point us ahead in time or backward in time to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It has been inappropriate for them to continue to offer those sacrifices. So that as much has been said. I want to briefly here at the end think, what does this have to do with us? What, is this, what relevance does this have to do with us. We are in very different situation from the recipients of this letter uh, where, where it is harder for us to apply. But I, I want to just give one simple uh, takeaway from this and flesh it out just a little bit. This would have been true for the recipients of this letter, and I think it's true of us as well, is that the experience of God's forgiveness transforms the way we keep God's commands. The experience of God's forgiveness transforms the way that we keep God's commands because there is a significant distinction between anticipating God's forgiveness that somehow may be granted to me in a way that I don't fully yet know and actually experiencing God's forgiveness through something that's already taken place. Those are very different realities. When we know we are forgiven, when we've experienced that, when we are experiencing that as a present reality, it affects the way we actually seek to obey God's commands right? Some of you in the room, you have never yet to this day, to this moment, actually experienced the forgiveness of God. 
Like you, as you sit here, you either know you're under the judgment of God or you wonder if you're under the judgment of God. You have no confidence right now that you are actually a forgiven son or daughter of God. And I, I, you maybe have heard other people find forgiveness. You may have heard that it's a wonderful thing. You've seen other people enjoy it, but you have not experienced it yet yourself. Maybe you haven't even wanted to seek it yourself. Most religions will try to tell you how to become a better obeyer of God. They'll try to tell you how to clean up your act. I want to tell you how you can actually be forgiven by God, how you can actually experience this forgiveness of God. And it doesn't involve you doing anything to try to bring to God something, to prove something to God, to to impress God. The way that you can actually experience forgiveness of your sins is by looking to the cross of Christ where that effective sacrifice was offered and saying, God, I am guilty, but I believe Christ died for me. Please forgive me. And the good, grand news for you is that if you cry out to God in that way, he will forgive you even now. He will forgive you even today. You don't have to prove something to him. You don't have to show him anything. He is glad and eager to forgive you if you will plead the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. So I I want you to experience the joy and the gladness of the forgiveness of your sins. I I want you to know that today and forever, the forgiveness of your sins through Christ. Call out to him. But for those of us who have done that, we, we have cried out to him for forgiveness. We're living in the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, there, there is a, a important thing for us to remember in this. When we know we are forgiven, we have a, a security about us, a settledness in our soul to know Christ died for me. There is no more punishment to come down upon me. Christ has died for me. That affects then, it should affect, how we actually live for God. We're, we're no longer trying to show him something or trying to keep good standing with him or trying to merit something from him. We're not trying to just appease our conscience by saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not that bad of a person. I didn't really mean that, God. I'm, I'm sorry for that. It's, we don't have to keep on this treadmill of keeping God's favor, keeping God's approval, keeping God's forgiveness. It has been granted to us once and for all through the sacrifice of Christ and that frees us then to serve him out of love, to serve him out of thankfulness, not out of obligation or just rigid rule-keeping, law-keeping, but to serve him out of joy, out of peace, not out of nervousness. I I was thinking of this just this morning. I had intended uh, to, to share something else, but a text came to mind that I had read somewhat recently back in the book of Genesis. Some of you are familiar with this story. There are these brothers, Jacob and Esau, where uh, Jacob was a scoundrel of a man. <laughs> uh, the fact that God created the nation of Israel from him testifies to the grace of God. Uh, Jacob was a, a scoundrel. He had uh, ripped off his brother on a few different occasions, his brother Esau. And he knew his brother was angry at him. He, he was sure of it, that his brother was angry at him. And he, uh, Jacob had gone away uh, for years and years and years. But he was coming back now to face his brother Esau, who he had done such wrong to. And the, the story just stuck out to me in reading it because what he does, I think as he approaches his brother uh, Esau, who he's wronged, I think is a, a picture sometimes of how we view ourselves with God. Because what Jacob did, because he had acquired all this wealth, he had acquired all these animals, and God had started to give him a family, he had all these, uh, these possessions and things, he, he, what he did 
uh, was he, almost in a cowardly way, as he was getting ready to approach back his brother, he sent all these people ahead of him. And he sent all these gifts ahead of him to try to like appease his brother who he knew was so angry. Uh, that, that was his approach. He wanted to be last and I'm gonna send all these gifts. And what is recorded for us in Genesis 32 verse 20, I think is symbolic or picturesque of somehow, uh, sometimes how we approach God. Jacob said this about sending all these people and gifts ahead of him. It says that he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. That's what he said. He's like, I'm going to send these gifts. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to send this stuff ahead to give to him. Maybe I'll appease him. Perhaps he will accept me. And I have known so many people. I used to live like this. Where when I would think of my relationship with God, I knew I had wronged him. Like I knew that I've offended him. I knew that he is would rightfully angry at me for my sin. And as I would think of my engagement with him, even as I would think of my worship, or I would think of my obedience toward him, I would think of it like, Joseph, or like Jacob thought of his sending gifts to Esau. Like I want to do something nice. I want to give you something so that you don't stay angry at me. I want to appease you. And I had no confidence to actually approach God. I was nervous. I was thinking, man, someday when I face judgment, who knows what's going to happen? It's going to be like a dice roll at best. Uh, that's how I would think. And I would be offering him my singing or my obedience, my generosity, whatever. It'd be like I'm offering these gifts to try to appease God. We must never, ever do that as Christians. Like when we think about our obedience to God, our giving things to God, our service of him, it is never just in hopes that we will appease him somehow or that maybe, just maybe, he'll actually forgive me, right? Because God is not Esau, right? Like God is glad to forgive us. God is eager to forgive us and someone has already gone ahead of us, right? Like to offer God what he wants, to offer a sacrifice that works. Who are we to think we can offer these paltry little gifts to God and that we'll somehow secure his favor? We will not. But Jesus has willingly, sacrificially gone ahead of us to the one we've wronged. And he has laid down his life for us so that we can come to God confidently, so that we can come to him with full peace, knowing I'm sinner, knowing I've wronged you, knowing I'm a mess even now, I can still come to you and I don't have to be nervous I don't have to think you're just going to sock me when I come to see your face. We get to come to him in corporate worship, in private worship, confident because Christ has gone ahead of us. He has offered the sacrifice that works. He has offered the gift that pleases. We must rest in that because that will affect how then we obey God. We're, we're not to live our lives just trying to scrape together a resume that pleases God. Like we are living in the finished work that Jesus has already done, the sacrifice that he has already offered so that the good things we do for God are done out of thankfulness, out of love, out of joy, not out of just obligation or fear. And those sacrifices of animals, there was a reminder of sin, but in the sacrifice of Christ, there is no more remembrance of it. God chooses to forget it, to forgive it, and we ought to praise him for it. May we live as forgiven people. 
May we worship as forgiven people. May we even sing as forgiven people who don't just do it out of obligation or law keeping, but do it out of thankfulness for the forgiveness God has given to us. Amen.